Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post, and I'm really happy to be joined by Brett Dawson, Pelicans beat writer for The Advocate in Baton Rouge in a, uh, a late night Sunday night podcast. Brett, how's it going? It's great, Tim. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm up anyway, so I'm glad to be doing this. I've, me and Brett have become quick friends, even though Brett's only in his first year on the NBA. And a big reason why is because, like me, he doesn't sleep. So we uh, we end up talking late at night a lot, which is uh, which has been great for me because um, I'm kind of a vampire. I never really sleep. People that know me make fun of me for it all the time. And uh, I've come to realize that Brett is a similar person. So what what were you watching? You were watching a movie before we did this, right? I was. I was watching Top Five, the Chris Rock movie, uh, which just uh, just came on Hulu, I guess, fairly recently. So I was kind of looking for something. I had watched about three quarters of uh, Lakers Suns, and it was. I just reached my breaking point with Lakers Suns. It was pretty fun because the Suns were truly awful, and it was kind of mesmerizing. Like I was having a hard time taking my eyes off it. But ultimately, start of the fourth quarter, I just decided I couldn't do that anymore. So I switched over, tried to entertain myself with that, and it was it was pretty good through the first like half hour, and then. You know, we're doing this. Well, what I mean, we're going to get into plenty of talk about the Pelicans, but what a complete disaster this Suns team has turned into. I mean, they gave up 44 points in the third quarter last night and give up like 140 something in the game to Sacramento. And then they go to Los Angeles and play the Lakers. And I think they had 22 points at halftime and were losing by 34 in the third quarter. Just, I mean, I don't know how Jeff Hornacek is going to have a job tomorrow. I mean, this feels like this has to be. Um, this feels like this has to be the end for him, right? Yeah, this, this, like by the time this is ready, right? It could be, he could no longer <laughs> right. It could be. It could be. People can right. hear this. He might not be the Suns coach. It, yeah, I they mean, were nine for forty-six from the floor in the first half. Um, nine for forty-six. That's 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 almost hard. It's just impossible. It's almost impossible to do. Um, yeah, I tweeted that maybe Eric Bledsoe. Maybe Eric Bledsoe is the MVP. Like if, <laughs> right, because he's left. That's Eric right. Bledsoe. He's left, and they've completely fallen apart. And that's a good. That's a good segue by you, Brett. Um, for because I, I don't for those of you who don't know, um, this is Brett's first year covering the NBA uh, in New Orleans, covering the Pelicans, uh, doing a great job. And Brett Brett spent about fifteen years before that um, becoming one of the top go to guys covering college hoops. He covered Illinois for a few years, and then he spent um, about ten years covering um, covering the University of Kentucky. Um, both at the Courier Journal, right, and then at Rivals. Yep. Um, yep. And, Went, and, uh, was at the Courier Journal in Louisville. Lived in Lexington and covered Kentucky, and then jumped to Rivals uh, after about five years of doing that. And and how much of that was the Calipari era? I know it's the whole era, but how uh, many? But like that was yep. like six, five or six years of it was Calipari. Yeah. So it was. Uh, I can't now. I'm forgetting if he had six or seven while I was there. But I had. So I had a year of Tubby Smith. Two years of Billy Gillespie and then all of Calipari. So I think that's it's either six or seven Calipari seasons. It all kind of runs together. Oh, I forgot we got the Billy Gillespie six. era. We have to talk about that first. Um, all right, so we're we're gonna we're gonna skip around a little bit more than I thought because I, I forgot you were there for Billy Gillespie. Um, can you can you describe to the listeners um, who weren't around Kentucky at the time how insane the Billy Gillespie era a Billy Gillespie era was as short lived as it was. It is extremely hard to express how weird that was. I actually, what's weird is uh, you mentioned I covered Illinois before I covered Kentucky, and Billy was an assistant at Illinois when I was there for Bill Self for the first year that I covered Illinois. My first, really, my first job, my first real kind of, you know, newspaper real gig was covering Illinois 
uh, for the Champaign News Gazette, and Billy was an assistant, and I got to know him, and he's a he's a different kind of guy. I mean, it was I have never doubted that Billy could coach. But, I mean, like, from the first day I met him, he was a guy you never thought would be the coach at a place like Kentucky. It is a big, big job. Uh, the guys who excel at Kentucky, and I wouldn't even count Tubby Smith in this in terms of being a guy who excels, even though he won a championship. The guys who excel are the guys who are bigger than the job. The ego is such that the job can't swallow them. Um, and that's really, in the modern era, that's Patino and that's Calipari. Um, Gillespie was not that kind of guy. He didn't like the sort of, you know, fishbowl nature of it. He didn't like the publicity of it. Uh, he had a very, very hard time with it. It was almost like he was trying to get fired at times. You know, like he had a press conference after one of his last losses at Kentucky where he stood up there and said, like, you know, it's not my job to be like a role model. It's not my job to go do like television commercials. You know, I'm not here to do all this other stuff. I'm here to win games. And the guy wasn't winning games. So it was it was very, very odd. It's just a really, really odd situation. And that was like a, you know, the other thing that the, to sort of sum up the oddity of that, like, I remember right after Calipari got hired, I was driving to Chicago. I was at the Courier-Journal. I was driving to Chicago for the NBA Combine or pre-draft camp, whichever they called it at the time. And I was like Jody Meeks and Patrick Patterson were in it. And, you know, got a call on the way. I had to stop because Billy Gillespie was suing the university. So I had to stop at a little town in Indiana and call Billy Gillespie's attorney. And, you know, whole big story about Billy Gillespie. Uh, <laughs> Billy Gillespie suing the University of Kentucky. I finish that story. I'm getting ready to get back in the car, and I find out that that Memphis story is broken. The Calipari had like an NCAA letter of inquiry at Memphis. That has happened like while I'm doing that. So it was it was an odd time, an odd transition, and just a really weird whirlwind. That's a very long answer to a short question, but it, yeah, it was, it was very strange. Yes, yes, I would say it was. And didn't I just see recently that he's coaching like some kind of really random tiny school in Texas somewhere? Did you see that story? Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know if it's a junior college. I can't remember where it is. It's 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 a strange deal because I wasn't sure if he would ever coach again. Uh, I think it was just such a bad experience, and he obviously it ended so badly. He sued the university. He got arrested for a DUI after that. It was not his first arrest. He had been arrested on suspicion of DUI a couple times before. Uh, it, it was an odd mix. It was it was never the right guy at Kentucky, and it was a kind of a I think just a thing of desperation. Tubby Smith. I don't know if they were going to fire Tubby Smith that year, but he left, I think, before they expected him to. And I think they had some other guys they really wanted. And when those guys said no, and John Calipari wasn't one of those guys. Well, they went after Jay Wright, didn't they? Wasn't that the the big name they were trying to get, Jay Wright from Villanova at the time? And then he said no, and then they ended up with Billy? It was one of the names. Billy Donovan was the the primary Ah, guy. That's right. He's got the connections. Uh, Jay Wright's name came up. Rick Barnes' name at Texas came up. Uh, There were all these names. But really the guys that... You know, the, the Kentucky athletic director really liked Billy Gillespie. He was not the number one guy. I mean, Donovan was always the number one guy at that time. Um, you know, uh, Mike Bray was a guy he liked a lot. Rick Barnes was a guy he liked a lot. Those are not really names that I think inspire a lot of excitement at Kentucky. And, and when those guys end up not taking the job, you know, that's where you end up, Billy Gillespie. Yeah, and it's really an incredible fall. Like it, It's hard to come up with a guy that, that's fallen as far as uh... – as he has in that short of time, but I we don't I don't want to spend an hour talking about Billy Gillespie, but that I just forgot he was there, and it is a fascinating uh, period. But you did spend several years covering John Calipari, which is relevant because there are now uh, dozens of NBA players who you covered. I think during your during your time there, um, I mean you've you've obviously been covering a high major college basketball has a lot of similarities to the NBA anyway. But what what was covering that Kentucky program like when you had the likes of you know, John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis and 
um, Michael Kidd Gilchrist and and all these guys um, coming through there year after year after year like that. Yeah, it was, um, you know, uh, Seku Smith at NBA.com, NBA TV, uh, used to tell me all the time, I've known Seku a really long time, and when I would tell him how much I wanted to cover the NBA, he would tell me all the time, you know, you already cover the 31st team, and that's sort of the way it felt in a way that you were kind of covering, like, the the – I guess the highest profile development league team, you know, like the, the highest level NBDL team you could possibly cover because they were going to be on TV all the time and they're going to be, you know, a big show everywhere they went. And yet you were going to be covering guys who were going to be superstars at some point in the NBA, or at least have the potential to do that. And so it, it did feel like NBA light in a lot of ways, uh, more so than it felt like covering a college team. Cause they really were kind of, they were like rock stars. You know, they had that sort of vibe. It was a, a period of time where, you know, we just, spent five minutes talking about Billy Gillespie. The program was down. People were not excited. Uh, suddenly you get a guy like John Wall to commit, and that was really the one. They had a lot of great players that first year, Cousins and Bledsoe. But Wall was the guy who was really he was very involved in that AAU scene. He's a guy that everybody knew, all the younger kids knew. Everybody looked up to him. He was the guy who sort of made it cool again. And that, that changed the whole dynamic of that program, and it really did become kind of like an NBA roadshow, except for the fact that, it was still very much college. It was still very much about the coach. You know, Calipari is the biggest figure there uh, year in and year out. It's still like, you know, the, the players are very sequestered from fans, very sequestered from media. It's a really, really different environment than the NBA, but it had that same sort of feel just because of the talent. Did you um, did you think that that team was going to go undefeated last year? <sighs> Not at the start of the year, certainly. Um, I, I always felt like if it got down to Wisconsin – that was a team that could beat them. I just thought because Kentucky, you know, for all the the talent that team had last year, Calipari's not the most innovative offensive guy. Um, they they are a little bit basic, um, and I always thought that that what they did was really batter you with their size and their offensive rebounding. Um, statistically, they were a great great offensive rebounding team, but only just like an okay defensive rebounding team. Uh, a really good defensive team that was that had some weaknesses there on the glass. I just felt like if a team with a lot of size, a lot of skill, uh, teams that could make them guard uh, long into the shot clock, who could really execute and then offset their size on the glass. You know, and I always thought Wisconsin. I, I always thought Wisconsin was a I, – I feel like if they'd have gotten to Duke in the championship game, one game away uh, against that matchup, I think they win. But Wisconsin was always the one. I felt like if they got – you know, if they had to match up with Wisconsin – besides all those other factors, Wisconsin just kind of lying in wait for them for a year, had lost them the year before, kind of a heartbreaking game. Uh, that was the one I always thought if they ran into Wisconsin, they would lose. And sure enough, they did. Nice. To, now, you, now you look smart for saying that. Um, yeah, and, uh, exactly. <laughs> um, of all the guys that you've had go through there, um, did, was there any guys that, that you either um, really enjoyed covering um, from a personal standpoint or somebody that – um, I guess as another angle, was there somebody that surprised you with how good they either were in college or became after? Um, well, let's see. I don't know that any of them necessarily surprised. I've probably been more surprised by a couple of the guys who haven't been as good in the NBA as I thought they might be. Um, All right, like who? You know, I, I, well, I, I kind of thought Marcus Teague would make a team. You know, like if you watch those guys when they were, you know, if you listen to the guys who watched them when they were younger. Um, you know, everybody thought Marcus Teague was better than Jeff Teague. I mean, everybody, every scout would tell you he just had more natural ability. Uh, you know, he was a, a little bit better athlete. He had a better sense of things. He was just supposed to be a better player. Um, and obviously, you know, he's been a guy who struggled to even make a roster while Jeff has turned into a really, really nice NBA player. 
Um, so that I didn't see coming, you know, um, I don't think I saw DeAndre Liggins having this much trouble sticking in the league. I thought maybe he'd be a specialist, just a defender and be a guy who was, you know, maybe a journeyman. Um, and some of those guys who I thought would just play small roles. I think I've been surprised those guys have not been able to stick him or Deron Lamb as like a, as a designated shooter, a guy that spaces the floor. And there's all kinds of reasons why those guys don't pan out. And I don't know their situations anymore, obviously, but I've been surprised by some of those guys. Um, is there anybody who's better? I think the, the sort of the nature of the Kentucky hype machine, right, is those guys are so good when they get there and they're so highly touted while they're there that I don't know if any of them really surprise you when they do well in the NBA. I guess Eric Bledsoe is better than I thought he was going to be. I guess that would be the one guy who jumps out in terms of looking at it that way. Yeah, now it makes sense, too, because he, I mean, he started, did he start every game for that team, or was he coming off the bench some? I'm trying to remember back to then. He started, I think they're... they're but he was playing off the uh, ball with John, and that was always the thing, that no one ever was quite sure if right, he was ever yeah. going to be a point guard. And that's he's obviously proven exactly. he could do that. Yeah, and he, he was not really a Kentucky, sort of the, the really well-kept secret about him in Kentucky, not really that great a defender. He wasn't great on the ball. He got beaten off the dribble a lot. And, and, you know, he's turned into a really good NBA defender, but that just wasn't really there. It wasn't really there for any of those guys. They weren't great on the ball. They were good. You know, that was a good – they had great size. They kind of funneled guys inside, blocked a lot of shots. But they weren't great on the perimeter defensively. And Bledsoe was one of those guys you just didn't think he was so good offensively that if he was like a liability defensively, you weren't sure what he was going to be. But it turns out, you know, he's good at both ends. It was, it's, it's, that, that one's been a real surprise. And and were there any guys from a personality standpoint you really got to enjoy? I mean, I know you weren't around them for that long because a lot of them were in and out. But did any, did anybody stand out from that side? Well, I mean, Cousins was a, a pleasure to cover. Really, I mean, uh, an actual pleasure. You know, or are you being sarcastic? Because he has he doesn't no, exactly I mean, have that really, reputation it was anymore. A pleasure. Okay. And why Keep is that? Keep in mind now we 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 weren't coaching him and we weren't playing with him. <laughs> right. I'm not sure I'd want to do either one of those things. <laughs> but covering him was great. Um, Why'd you enjoy it? Because a lot of people would probably be surprised to hear that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, he, and, and this is a, a big difference, I think, um, between covering a college player and covering an NBA player. You know, if you cover the NBA, you're pretty accustomed to guys who, you know, you, you are going to get your canned answers, but these guys talk so much and they get so accustomed to doing it that you get a lot of guys who give you some personality and really let you see a little bit of themselves in the NBA. Like you get more of that in college. So much of it is canned. So much of it is guys who are afraid to say the wrong thing, afraid the coach is going to get mad at them. And, and there was just none of that with him. He spoke his mind all the time. You know, he would say things that, you know, guys just weren't supposed to say in college. He would cuss when he was talking to us, which nobody did in college. You know, nobody does that because there's so much fear of how mad people are going to get or there's fear about your image or whatever. There's none of that with Cousins. He was just, you know, he said what he, what he felt all the time. Um, you know, if he thought a player wasn't good, he would tell us he didn't think that guy was good. He, you know, he would tell us a team wasn't good, you know, uh, and you just didn't get that in college. So it was just, it was really, really refreshing. And I, I can understand completely how, you know, the DeMarcus Cousins act can wear a little thin, but for a year in college, uh, as compared to what you normally got, it was a, it's legitimately a pleasure. No, it makes a lot of sense. Now, um, I, I promised we're going to be done with Kentucky in a minute. We'll get to the team you cover now, but, uh, you know, John Calabari is a guy that obviously has an NBA history with the Nets uh, back in the 90s and, you know, has flirted with the NBA at different times, could have gone back to the Cavs, um, uh, I guess, uh, now a year and a half ago uh, before LeBron signed and didn't. Um, you know, looking at his situation moving forward, 
Um, what do you think the chances are that Calipari will, you know, scratch that itch and get back to the NBA um, one more time? And do you think that the opportunity, whether he wants to or not, is going to present itself at some point? You know, you don't need to try to name destinations, but um, right. do, do you think it's likely that he'll get that opportunity? It seems like he would like to probably try to go after one more time. Yeah, I wonder more about whether he'll get the opportunity than I, I do about whether he'd like it. I mean, I do think he'd like to do it. And, and I say that, I don't want to pretend that I know him really well. He is he is a guy who, you know, he has his sort of national guys who he talks to. Um, but in terms of, like, spending time alone, one-on-one, he just doesn't do that with local beat writers. It's just not something he would ever do. I think in the time that I covered him, we probably sat down twice um, I, I know once right after he got the job, we got him uh, like like everybody got kind of a round robin one on one with him, and then right after I went to Rivals, uh, right on the heels of them winning the championship that summer, I spent a long time with him, a long sit down interview that I think was the longest one anybody's done with him, uh, local, uh, you know, anybody locally on the beat. But I, you know that that's the extent of the time I've spent really talking to him and getting to know him, and so I don't know a ton about him, but I do know people who do know him. Um, and I do think that that failure uh, with the Nets uh, still eats at him some. Um, I think he still gets mad when people call it a failure because they did go to the playoffs one year, but they were pretty bad in the, the third year that he got fired uh, pretty early in the season. Um, I, I think, you know, he's proven, obviously, beyond a shadow of a doubt, he's a Hall of Famer now in, in college basketball. I mean, that's the Basketball Hall of Fame. He's a Basketball Hall of Famer for what he's done in college. But I do think it eats at him, the pro thing, the fact that he hasn't had success there. Um, I think the way he runs his program and the types of players he recruits, you know, it is like kind of an NBA program light. Um, and so I think he feels like the transition would be a little easier probably now because he's, he's coached a lot more guys who are similar to the guys he would coach at that level. So I do think that he would like to do it. But I do tend to kind of think of him in some ways, and, and you know more about the league than I do, I view him in some ways as kind of a tweener uh, in the sense that, you know, like there are a lot of jobs I think he would like, and I don't know if they would hire him. And there are a lot of places where I could see hiring him that I don't know that he'd want to go, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. And you look at the guys recently that have gone from college to the pros, right? And who are the kind of guys they are? They're they're Brad Stevens and Billy Donovan, who are mild-mannered, easygoing guys that are going to be easy to deal with from a management standpoint. And I think when you look at guys like Rick Pitino and John Calipari, not to necessarily link the Kentucky guys together, but um, when you look at the college coaches like that, I think it's harder for those guys to get the pro jobs because they are going to come in expecting to get total authority over everything and be kind of, you know, like emperor situations. And, it's hard for any coach to get that situation in the NBA, let alone somebody that's coming from college and somebody that when they were in the pros last time didn't exactly have a stellar stint. You know, you look around the NBA, the guys that are getting those jobs are Doc Rivers and Stan Van Gundy and Greg Popovich, you know, guys that have won championships or been to the finals and been, you know, routinely great coaches in the league, you know, even, and even then a lot of times people kind of question whether that that's a smart move. So, I do think that I agree with you that I think Calipari definitely wants to do it, but I do wonder if, like you said, if the right mix of, you know, opportunity and, you know, an opportunity that he's willing to take will ever, you know, really come across, unless he is just so desperate to do it that if a job that's kind of a mess at the moment, like 
the Nets or the Kings, a job that, that has a lot of warts on it at the moment, um, he just takes to try to get you know that last shot at the league. Um, but speaking of taking a jump to the league, um, you you have done that this year. You went from, you know, like you said, I mean, you basically were covering the 31st NBA team, you know, a team that a lot of NBA teams don't get as much attention as. I mean, I covered the Nets before. More people pay attention to Kentucky than the Nets or the Sixers or the Nuggets, a lot of these teams that haven't been good in recent years. Um, yeah, you know, or the Pelicans, really. Or the I Pelicans, mean, you know, right. A, sure. Yeah, right. That's a great Kentucky's example. Kentucky's a bigger deal there than the Pelicans are here. Yeah, certainly. totally. So, um, I imagine that covering the NBA has always been, you know, something you've wanted to do if you made this move. So why, you know, why did you decide to do this, and why did you think now was the right time to do it? Well, the the, the reason I wanted to, I'd always wanted to do it because the NBA is the thing that, you know, that was the thing that drew me to sports more than anything else. You know, I am a, I'm a Michael Magic Larry, you know, I, I'm, I'm that guy, you know, I'm the guy who, who came up as the NBA was really kind of exploding. And um, that was what I loved to do more than anything else was watch the NBA. You know, the playoffs were appointment television. I was the guy who snuck away from the family stuff on Christmas day and, and pissed off my parents. And, you know, that, that I was the guy always in debates about Patrick Ewing and Akeem Olajuwon and David Robinson you know, I, th- that was just my passion. It was the thing I always wanted to do. But I went to college at Kentucky, and the opportunity to cover Kentucky was just sort of there uh, right away. So you got to cover a really high-profile college program. And then, you know, th- that presented some opportunities to go cover Illinois, and the Illinois thing led to another job covering Kentucky. And so, you know, it just sort of all of a sudden, you're you're in this – you know, you're in a really great place. It's a place that's uh, – you know, it's a big-time program to cover. You know, you're you're – it's a high profile series of jobs, um, you know, and it's, it's a great deal. It's, it's a fun place to be. It's a fun team to cover. The fans really care. I mean, if you want to be at a place where, you know, people are reading what you write covering Kentucky is not bad, but the NBA was always still sort of there in the back of my mind. And, um, you know, basically the reason I wanted to do this was because this opportunity sort of presented itself. The, the Pelicans, uh, the, the advocates never had a full-time Pelicans beat writer, um, and, and technically, I am not a full-time Pelicans beat writer. I am the full-time Pelicans beat writer. I treat this like a full-time job, but I'm not a full-time employee. I was willing to come down here and kind of, uh, you know, risk it and hope for a full-time thing down the road. Um, this was a place that I'd always kind of circled. I loved the city. Um, I had a good working relationship with Davis, uh, with Anthony Davis when he was at Kentucky. Um, and, and you know, I'd met the sports editor here, and we hit it off. And um, I think he was uh, – Definitely excited for me to come down here and do it. Um, and so, yeah, it was just it, the opportunity presented itself. It's a, it's a real risky thing. It's kind of a, you know, I'm chasing a dream, sort of. But I've, it was time to chase it. I've been waiting on it for a long time. Yeah, it's that's it's a pretty awesome it's a pretty awesome story. So I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you told it. It is pretty it's pretty cool. Um, you know, because obviously covering Kentucky is a big deal, and it, and it it's cool um, that this is something you really wanted to do, and you took you know you did take a risk to do it, and it's. Uh, and you're you're killing it covering the team, so um, you know I, I think it's going to work out in the long run. But um, you know you mentioned before you you in talking about Demarcus, you kind of talked about how um, it you know the difference is a little bit in covering a college team or an NBA team. But um, you know for people that you know they watch games in college, they watch the NBA, and you know they know that things are a little different. Um, you know what are kind of the differences between you know, being around a college program on a daily basis as opposed to being around an NBA one like you are now in New Orleans? 
Well, I think the primary difference is just from a, a coverage standpoint, and this is true for fans. It's true for you know media covering a team. Um, it's true for you know uh, the advertisers who promote the, the the program or whatever. The coach is the show in college, and so you know the most important thing every game or every every before the day before a game when you're previewing a game, the most important thing is whatever the coach thinks. You know, that is the key. It's the thing that matters most. What does John Calipari think? What does Rick Pitino or Mike Krzyzewski or Roy Williams or whoever? Who, who, what do those guys have to say about what's happening? Um, that The opposite, of course, is true here. I mean, like, no matter what happens, if Anthony Davis has 50, it's very important to know what Anthony Davis thinks about having 50. If he has eight, that's equally important, you know, what, that Anthony Davis had a bad game. And so the, the star player is so much more important than the coach and it's not just the star player. It's a player's league. Everybody knows that. Um, and so that, that dynamic is so much more important uh, covering the NBA. It's also so much more accessible. I mean, in the sense that, you know, the, the Pelicans aren't the most accessible team in the league. And yet still, you know, on any given day, you're going to get to talk to a lot of players twice, you know, at a shoot around, at a post game, um, you know, on a practice day, you might not, not, not have as much access to people. But, you know, Anthony Davis is going to talk at every morning shoot around when they have one. And he's going to talk after every game. Um, you know, a college player at a place like Kentucky, um, and this isn't the case everywhere, but at a place like Kentucky, you know, I would maybe talk to John Wall once a week, uh, maybe twice a week, depending on if he was the if he was the best player in any given game. We might get him after two games in one week, but we certainly wouldn't get him the day before a game to kind of preview it. They they they're very careful about spreading the wealth. Not you know they make two players available the day before a game. They make three players available after a game. Uh, you're at their mercy. They're going to bring out who they want to bring out, that kind of stuff. So it's a real different access situation. Um, and that, 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 in addition to sort of the importance of the players, probably the two biggest things. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Um, now, and was that – I know Kentucky is kind of a unique situation given, um, you know, how many big-name players were there. But even even towards the beginning when, you know, say it was Gillespie or Tubby Smith there or, or even at Illinois – um, was that, is it always the case that the coach is always the biggest deal or, or are there instances, um, I guess like I'm trying to think of them, like, I guess maybe Stephen Curry at Davidson was an example where, they, I mean, right. do you think there are, uh, like, have there been some instances where you've had a player that kind of became more important than the coach at any point? Or is that really just such well, an Davis, outlier Curry at Davidson that it really is the only one that makes sense? Davis to an extent, because I, there are people who have watched a lot more Kentucky basketball than I have. And I've seen a lot who would tell you that Anthony Davis is the best player who's ever played there. You know, he just so happened to only play a year, and a lot of the all-time greats played three or four. Um, but in terms of just being a player and, and all he accomplished and how decorated he was, they would say he's the greatest player who ever played there. And I, I wouldn't put up a fight if somebody wants to assert that he's the greatest Kentucky player ever. Um, and so, you know, he, he became such a, a thing. I mean, he became such a, a fascination nationally, the unibrow thing the growth spurt story, all that stuff. Um, and so he, he became such a huge part of that team and such a huge part of that college basketball season. And yet, you know, if they're playing Mississippi State on Tuesday night, the odds are that we're not getting him on Monday. We're not going to get to talk to him. Uh, and so, you know, if he's the best player that Tuesday night against Mississippi State, well, we'll get to talk to him after that. He'll be at a podium with 10 guys sitting in chairs, um, you know, so it just, it, the, the Calipari thing, it was just so much easier to get to him. And so even in a case like that with a coach like Calipari, he's still sort of the big story. And, and 
you know, the way you can tell that it's about Calipari is how often he says it's about the players, you know? He, he, <laughs> right. Every college coach kills me with that. that. Every college coach right. kills me with that. It's the worst. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, there are guys, you know, like when I covered Illinois, the, the one Illinois team I covered was great. Darren Williams was on it. Um, and D Brown and Luther head. And they, they went to the, the last game of the regular season. Oh, wow. You lost. covered that they team lost. too. Wow. You, you yeah. had a hell of a run covering college that I loved yeah. that Illinois team. I mean, I got to know Darren yeah, later with the great. Nets, but that team was awesome. Yeah, I wrote a book about that team, actually. Did you really? All right, we'll plug the book right now. Yeah. What is your book? I didn't even know that. Sort of a fake book. It's like, uh, it was this uh, uh, sports publishing company that was actually based out of Champaign, uh, but they did, some, they did some other sports books. But they had this series of like kind of, they were like tales of the whatever, so like tales of the fighting line or whatever. So they had done them for other championship teams and other great Final Four teams. And so, yeah, it was one of those deals where they were like, hey, uh, the season was over, and my, my, uh, the publisher of my paper came to me and said, hey, uh, we signed this deal for you to write a book. So you're going to have to crank out a book here. Well, what is the name of the book? Plug the book, man. Get people to buy it. I, re- I really think it's Tales from the Fighting Illini, I think is what it was called. I, like, it's not like a great title that I got to come up with or whatever. It was like part of the series. Well, I'm, I'm, like, I'm going to go find it because I loved that team. I, I, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I thought Darren Williams was going to be better than Chris Paul because of watching that team. Like, that, that team was just so good. And if I, if yeah. I, I'm trying to remember, that was, they were the ones that played the crazy game with Arizona in the Elite Eight, right? Correct. Yeah, that game well, is they were one down. of the greatest college games I've ever seen. That game was unbelievable. Yeah. So I've covered what I think are probably two of the greatest college games that have ever been played. Um, that was one of them. And that one's, you know, as great as that one was, Arizona really dominated that game until the last four minutes. They were yes. up 15 with four minutes to go. Yes. And then when I came back. And then the Kentucky-Wichita State game from two years ago when Wichita State was undefeated and Kentucky was the underachieving, you know, they were the eighth seed, uh, had sort of had this really disappointing season with Julius Randle and James Young and those guys. That was just an epic, all-time great you know, SI named it the game of the year. Um, it was it was a great great game. So yeah, two two NCAA tournament games that I think in the you know let's say post ninety two Kentucky Duke that's before my time. Like post that game, those are two of the best games I think that have been played in the NCAA tournament. I was courtside for both of them. So is, is that yeah, your favorite it, game at Kentucky? Fortunate. Kentucky Wichita State. Definitely. That, that's my that's my favorite game I've ever covered. I mean that 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 is. Yeah, that was an incredible game. To top that. Yeah, that was an that was an incredible game. Um, and uh, so, all right, well, let's transition to the Pelicans. Now, you mentioned obviously Anthony Davis. You have a very, um, I, should, I mean, you have a, a pretty good relationship with him, given you spent a full year with him at Kentucky. You've known him for a while. Um, he's obviously a terrific player. Um, he's averaging you know twenty three points, eleven rebounds, two and a half blocks, twenty five. He's got a twenty five per. Um, you know, I I ranked him as the best player in the league coming into the season. He had one of the ten or twelve best statistical seasons all of all time last year, at least by PER. Um, seemed like he was about to take a giant leap and really become, you know, one of the faces of the league if he isn't already. And it it as well as he's playing, it just seems like things haven't quite come together the way everybody thought. Um, even beyond the record for the Pelicans and. Um, I guess my first question about him is, do you think that it's fair to kind of take some points from Davis off of, you know, where his standing is right now? Because the Pelicans, even with the many injuries they have, have struggled to the degree they have so far this season. 
Yeah, I think it's fair because that's the nature of the league, right? I mean, that that is what the league is. The star player is judged um, in in some degree uh, by how his team does. I mean, always, you know, what is Charles Barkley? He's one of the greatest players of all time who didn't win a championship. That's how he's defined, whether that's fair or not. We all acknowledge that he's an all-time great, but we hold that against him. That's always part of the, you know, that that's the second paragraph with Charles Barkley all the time that he didn't win a championship or Patrick Ewing or Carl Malone or whoever. Um, and so th- th- that's just part of how you're defined in the league. And I think that's fair. I think it's, I, I think it's just the way things are. And I think the, the guy who understands that as well as anybody is Anthony Davis. I mean, you know, one of the first things I did when I got this job, I hadn't even moved yet. I was still in Lexington. Uh, he was in town for, they, they played a charity alumni game. So it was a bunch of former Kentucky guys against a bunch of former North Carolina guys. And, and a lot of the, the, the high profile guys didn't play. Uh, you know, DeMarcus Cousins played in it and Harrison Barnes, and they were kind of the A-list guys. Davis was there, but had just signed the new contract. The Pelicans were not going to let him play in the, in a summer charity game like that. So he was a coach. Um, and we spent a long time after that game. We actually rode out to the airport with him. He had a drive. We're to take him to the airport to come back to New Orleans after the game. I rode with him out there. I spent about 25 minutes maybe in the car with him. Um, and that was one of the things we talked about. You know, his legacy is really important to him. He, he's a guy who studies all that stuff, who studies the history of the league, who cares a lot about being considered one of the great players in the league. He, he, he flat told me that day, and it's not the first time he's ever said it, that he wants to be considered, you know, if not the greatest player who's ever played basketball, one of the greatest. That, that matters to him. And he knew going into this year that this was a year where people would start to say, okay, you've been, you know, this has been fun. This has been great. You have all these highlights. Your stats are off the charts. But now show us that you can win or else, you know, catch some heat for it. I think he was aware of that going in. And I I think he knows that that's, you know, that it's it's starting to come his way now. I think he he understands it. Uh, I think that he hates it and he's struggling with it, but I think he gets it. And yeah, so again, as you're finding out, I give long answers. But that's my long answer to that question is, yeah, that's fair. Your long answers are good, man. So don't worry about it. Um, when you when you say that he understands it, um, you know when you when you look at it, I mean, you say it's fair to take things away from him because they're not winning games. So from that standpoint, you know, obviously they do have a bunch of injuries. But what does he need to be doing to get this team? You know, I know they've gotten a little better recently, and they're not way out of it. But they obviously are way below where they hope to be, even with the injuries. So. What, what does he need to be doing to kind of get this team to the level it needs to to get back in the playoff chase and, you know, kind of salvage a season that right now looks like it could be just going down the tubes? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things. One, we know he has sort of the capacity. He's a good enough player to sort of take command in games late uh, and bring a team home. That, that's the point of having a superstar in the league, right? Get it close and then have your guy bring it home. That's, that's what he's supposed to do. And I don't know that if you've watched them over the course of the season, I don't know how many games you would look at and say, okay, he did it at the end. They needed him to go do it, just finish this deal, and he went out and did it. He certainly did it against the Spurs uh, when they beat the Spurs in New Orleans, which is really kind of their most inexplicable win uh, of the year. Um, That was was a jaw-dropping result for sure. Yeah, and he was fantastic in that game. He was really, really good. I mean, uh, he was very good against Cleveland when they beat Cleveland. I think he had 31 in the game they beat Cleveland. Another one that was kind of surprising. Uh, they got a huge lead in that game, blew it, and then kind of came down the stretch and won, and he was really good in overtime. Um, so I think you need to see some of that from him. You need to see if they're getting into position to win, and they are now doing that. They weren't doing that in the beginning of the year. And, and he gets some kind of pass 
for the one and eleven start because that was just not even that was not an NBA roster. I mean, they just did not have a, a team on the floor that should have been competing with good NBA teams with a great player or without. You can't you can't win with one guy. Um, but but now that they do have a little bit more of a, a healthy roster, they got everybody back now except for Quincy Pondexter, who is a big piece, and I think they expect it to be a a big part of this. Um, but yeah, they, they need him to. I think they, they've got to have him be a, a sort of dominating, not just a dominating player, but a dominating presence and personality. And I think that's still a process for him. I don't think he's the guy yet who screams at the guys who don't get him the ball. And I think he has to be that guy. I mean, I think that's, that's who you are as a superstar in this league. You've got to be a guy who, if you don't get the touches you need, uh, you know, I'm not saying he's got to be a selfish player, but he's got to be a, a, a dominating player and a guy who, who is mad if he's not dominating. And then, He's got to be better defensively. He's a great shot blocker who is not a great defensive player, and he has a lot of strides to make in that area. So that's a place he's really got to improve. I mean, he, he doesn't really want to play center. Um, you know, they're very good when he does, and he doesn't complain about it. It's just not his preferred situation. But if he's going to play a lot of four, um, then he needs to be able to guard out on the floor more. He needs to be able to guard those stretch fours and guard guys who can shot fake you and go by you. He's got to be better at that sort of stuff. So – that, that's some stuff he can still do better. And, you know, it's funny because even when we pick on him, he's having a, he's still having a really good year statistically. It's not last year, but it's a great year. Right. No, he's right. He's still excellent. He should definitely be an all-star again. He's, he's still an elite player in the league. But like you said, you know, this is a guy that last year had, you know, honestly had, I think, the it was the 10th or 12th best season of all time by PER. The only guys who have had a higher PER than him ever yeah. are Will Chamberlain, Michael Jordan, and LeBron James. So, yep. you know, when you have a season like that in your age 21 slash 22 season, then, you know, you're setting the bar high. And when you say things like, I want to be the best player or one of the best players of all time, then like you said, you're you're setting yourself up for, for that kind of situation. Now, with all that being said, um, he obviously is a terrific player. Like I said, I picked him as a top player in the league coming into the season. I thought he was going to explode this year, and it obviously hasn't quite gone to that, even though he has been really good. Do you think because of the issues the Pelicans have had, is it? Do we are we being a little premature saying that Anthony is a superstar in the league, um, or is this just a matter of you know, yeah, he hasn't quite been to maybe the level he was last year, but They've had a ton of injuries, and he still is a superstar-level player, and this is just kind of a blip, and you know whether it's by the end of the season or the start of next year, he's going to be where everybody expected him to be all along. Yeah, I think that's the question. I mean, he's. I think what's weird about him is this is sort of his first real growing pains year. He, he didn't have them coming up. He had injuries, um, and that was, a, that was a problem. He would have those injury setbacks, but he just was on this – like skyrocket trajectory where he just got better and better and better. And this is the first season where it's sort of like, oh, well, he's not getting better. And maybe in some categories, he's a little bit worse. And maybe there's been a little bit of regression here or there. And there's certainly been some team regression. Um, but, you know, I think it's it, maybe it's premature to say he's, he's not a superstar level player. Maybe it was premature to say he was one last year after one season like that. Um, but I, I think he still certainly has all those tools. He still certainly has everything you want in a star player. I, I do think that he's got to have a little bit more commanding personality, but he's also a guy everybody will tell you universally. People will praise him for his coachability 
and and just what kind of teammate he is. People seem to get along with him. Uh, I think he's marketable. He's got all the things that you want from a guy to be a superstar player. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think what we're going to find out over time is is he, you know, is he Michael Jordan or is he Scottie Pippen? Uh, and I'm not saying he's got to be Michael Jordan as a player, but is he that guy? Is he the guy who can be the best player on a team that wins a championship? And, and, and by that, I don't just mean that he's talented enough to do that, but he's got the will and the personality to do that stuff. Maybe the jury's still out there. Yeah, no, and, and to be clear, I, I'm not trying to say that. Are, should we? Are we like? I'm not trying to have the is Anthony Davis overrated conversation um, for the audience. Like, I know that you know what I'm coming from with that, but I mean, he's obviously yeah, right. He's and obviously like, a terrific player. Like, that's not that's not. Yeah. I'm not trying to say maybe we should like ease off on thinking he's any good at this point. No, we're not gonna we're not gonna propose this. Or, or well, let me not put words in your mouth. <laughs> I am not going to propose like. Would you rather have Anthony Davis or DeMarcus Cousins? Right, 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 exactly, exactly. He's still one of the, you know, the highest level commodities in the league, um, without question. Um, All right, so let's move on to the the rest of the team, because there there have been a lot of issues with this group. So, um, you know, Davis has been a little up and down just for his level, but he's obviously been great. But um, there have been a ton of injuries. Um, You know, Drew Holiday was coming back off of, you know, some repeated leg issues. He had a minutes limit for a while. Ryan Anderson's coming off a bunch of injuries. Tyreek Evans missed time with uh, knee surgery. Um, uh, Omar, I, I, everybody's been hurt on the team. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what? So what is the status of? I believe just about everybody is healthy now. So what? What is the yeah, status? Except, what? No, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. What is the injury status right Qu- now? Quincy Pondexter's it. Just Quincy Pondexter is out right now. And. Tyreek missed their last game, but that was with some tendonitis that I don't and how the, uh, and and, and Quincy's had a knee issue going back to the summer. Um, what is there a timetable yeah. on when he's going to be back? There is not. They they have not given us a timetable uh, in terms of we expect him back on the court X date. Uh, but he's practicing now, and that's a that's a fairly new development. I think he started practicing early last week, so he's not really far away. Alvin Gentry said the other day, I, I think, and I don't want to say this is exact, but. I, I think he said somewhere in the two week range. So it, whether that's whether two weeks is a, a hard and fast deadline, I don't think it is. He's close. He's getting he's getting closer. Right. He's getting closer. All right. So so now now that we've gotten a chance to at least for a little while see most of what this team was supposed to be coming into the season, um, you know, where do you think this roster sits right now? Um, you know, the, the Pelicans are eleven and twenty two. They started out one in one and twelve, right? One and eleven. One and eleven. So they've been basically five hundred since then. Um, yep. But you know, where do you where do you see this team sitting right now? How do you see it coming together now that these guys finally are getting a chance to play a little bit together on the court and not mostly sitting at street clothes watching Anthony Davis try to play with you know a couple guys that probably shouldn't be in the league. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to say. You know, it's funny because you say like, how, how do we see them coming together? And so far, we still really don't. I don't think. They're, they're getting better. They're making some progress. Uh, if you look, I was looking at some numbers yesterday. I think they, you know, over their last six games, they're at 99.5 points for 100 possessions. That's way down from, like, they're at 107 for the season. They've been the second-worst defensive team in the league uh, and, a, and a pretty big gap between them and the next worst. I mean, it's like the Lakers and then them, and then there's kind of a, a, a gap. Um, so they've been terrible defensively, but they've gotten a lot better 
you know, they have Darren Ehrman, who, you know, around the league has a, has a great deal of respect as an X and O guy, as a defensive guy, as just kind of a, a, a having a mind for that. Um, and, and they have showed some progress there. Um, offensively, though, I mean, you know, what we might be finding out is what some people suspected, and I wasn't sure I felt about this coming in because, I, you know, I hadn't been around the league enough and I hadn't been around this team enough. But um, I think you're at the stage now where you look at the roster and you look at the style, you look at the coach, Alvin Gentry, and what they do, and you start to question whether this all fits together. Um, and the answer so far is definitively no, because as they've gotten a little bit better, they've slowed down the pace. They haven't played as fast as they were playing early in the year. Um, they are not, you know, a, a real, uh, you know, th- this is supposed to be a variation on what Gentry and Mike D'Antoni did in Phoenix. Uh, it's supposed to be kind of the variation on it, essentially, that uh, the Golden State was running. Obviously, you don't have Steph and Clay. It looks a lot different. But, but it's supposed to be that offense at its core, and it's really not. I mean, that's not really what they're doing. They don't push it. They're not a great ball movement team. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the, the answer to that question is uh, that I, I think we still don't know. We still don't know what they are, but what they, they definitely aren't is this sort of fast-paced Alvin Gentry team with these players from last season. That, I think that was the vision, and that is not what, what they have at this point. Well, right, and, and you think about, you think about a, a Alvin Gentry, Mike D'Antoni kind of team, right? And that's a team that has a an elite guard that can run the offense. It has a role guy and it has a bunch of shooters. And, yep. you know, the, the Pelicans, I mean, let's just start at the point, right? So we have Drew Holiday, who right. is a talented player, but has for several years had these recurring, um, I, almost shin splints, I guess, or stress reactions. Yes. Um, Stress reaction. Right. Yep. Kind of like what, uh, for people in Washington, kind of like what Bradley Beal has repeatedly gone through. Um, yes. the, the Pelicans got $3 million from the Sixers this summer um, as compensation for, uh, I guess, Philadelphia not disclosing enough or these not getting picked up in the medical records during the trade for Drew Holiday a couple of years ago. Um, and then you have Tyreek Evans, who is kind of a point guard, is kind of a shooting guard, Um you know, has always been kind of a pound the ball into the ground guy, and 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 you know, you know that's kind of always been his game, whatever position he actually played. Um, and they're trying to make this work with the two of them kind of having the ball. And um, do they? Do you think that at some point, either these guys need to pick one of those guys to be their point guard, or? you know, try to find a way to either move one or both of them to get the kind of guard that they need to really run what Alvin wants to do? Yes, is the short answer to that question. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, what they're doing right now is they're starting Tyreek. Um, they're bringing Drew Holiday off the bench. Uh, and, and Gentry loves that, and there's reason to love it. I mean, it, it puts uh, it kind of puts Drew in a situation, I think, where he's a little bit more comfortable as a scorer. Um, because they need a little more scoring on that second unit. He can kind of look for his own shot first, which is really probably his preference. Um, I, I think he's the closest thing they have. When you talked about, you know, the, the, the offense that, that you want to run, that Mike D'Antoni system, he's the closest thing they have to that point guard. Even he's not ideally it, because I think he's a little bit more of a scorer. Um, but, but they've separated them in that way at the start of games. And, and Holiday's been really, really good off the bench. Statistically, a huge jump since he was a starter. 
compared to when he was a starter. Uh, but they're still finishing the game with those two guys on the floor together. And when they do that, primarily Tyreek has the ball. Holiday's a, a much better shooter. Um, so you can kind of play him off. And, you know, you can do a kind of whoever gets it, brings it thing. Um, but w- when you set up in a half court, pretty much Tyreek is the point guard. And, you know, again, when you talk about the, the prototype for that D'Antoni offense, Tyreek Evans doesn't fit in any of those roles you talked about. You know, I mean, if you talk about you want a point guard who runs it, you want a role guy, you obviously have that. Uh, you want a bunch of shooters. You know, they have some shooters. Uh, but Tyreek is not a guy who fits into that system uh, on paper at all, and, and in practice he hasn't at all at this point. He's still a good player, and he's had a uh, you know a fine season since he came back, but it's, it's not a fit for what they're trying to do. Right. Tyreek is a guy that walks the ball up the court, and isn't a good spot-up shooter. I mean, I know he's hitting, I think, 30. It looks like he's hitting 37% of his threes this year, which is better than usual. But he's not um, hes not a guy that you look at and go, you know, this guy is a, a knockdown three-point shooter. His career average is 28% from three. So um, he's not a guy that anybody's going to have any, any real worry about with him shooting the ball. And, you know, like you said, you know, Alvin's been a guy that wants to push the pace and get the ball up court. And, and Tyreek isn't going to do that. I mean, he's going to bring the ball up and do his thing, and that that's his thing. So, um, th- with that being said, you know, the Pelicans do have some guys that can hit some threes. They got Eric, Eric Gordon on the wing, who's a very good shooter when he's healthy. This year, he's been mostly healthy. Um, Ryan Anderson's a very good shooting power forward. Um, kind of the become he's kind of become the prototype for the stretch four that everyone's trying to find around the NBA. Um, he's had some injuries the last couple of years, but. Um, that he really was kind of one of the first guys that kind of broke the mold for that. Now, they're both unrestricted free agents this summer, um, and they're two guys that you know would seem to make sense for what the Pelicans are going to do moving forward. However, it doesn't seem like either of them are, for probably different reasons, in the long-term thinking of this team. So as you look at this roster... Obviously, Anthony Davis is a guy you're not trading for pretty much anything in the league, I would say. So, setting him aside, what do you see as the long-term building blocks or guys that potentially can be around him? I mean, is it fair to say there might might not be any at this point? Yeah, I I think if there's one, it's probably Holiday. Um, you know, and I'm not sure that it's holiday. You and know, that I, probably I, depends I mean, on if he's it, healthy, right? If he's healthy, he right. probably is the second guy. Right. Um, and, and you hope, uh, given what you gave up for him, that, that ultimately that does happen, uh, that he is healthy and he sort of realizes his potential because he is a, you know, he, he's been a good player in the NBA. He is a guy who, you know, if Drew Holiday is your second or third best player, that's not a bad second or third best player. Excellent, if you excellent him, defender at the point. Right. Can do a lot of things. Athletic yeah. guy, big guy. Um, he's he's a he's a very good player. Very very good player. Yeah. And so if you if there's a guy and and he fits better than what a lot of the other pieces do. But what you brought up is really the fascinating conundrum of them, right? It's that the two guys who, if you say okay, like who fits what you're doing as complementary guys, not not as your star players, but who fits the system for what you're trying to do? Who works? Well, Eric Gordon works because he's a good spot up shooter. Uh, he he gets up and down the floor enough that he you know he's not he's not a slasher anymore. That was never really his game, but it was more his game in L.A. Um, he's just not going to do that. But he is a guy who really can make three point shots at a, at a high volume, um, and he he finds openings. He's not a great defender, but you know you, you can live with him in this offense. Uh, you know you're going to have that some if you're looking for shooters. You're going to have some holes there defensively. And then Ryan Anderson, who as you said 
sort of ideal for this as a, as a power forward. It's kind of an ideal situation to pair him with Davis statistically. They're really good offensively when those two guys are on the floor together and better than you think they would be defensively, actually, with those two guys. And rebounding-wise, that comes and goes. Uh, those guys are good enough rebounders. They don't always do it. Um, but, yeah, th- those two guys, you'd say, okay, in terms of complementary pieces, if you were just going to start over but you had to keep some guys, those would be two of the guys you'd keep, except for the fact that those guys are going to get a lot of money in this offseason. They're going to be kind of you know, second-tier free agents in a year when a ton of teams are going to have a ton of money to go out and get the first-tier guys. And so those guys are still going to command a load of money. And so I, I don't think that – I don't know that either guy is necessarily committed to staying in New Orleans. I suspect the opposite is true. I don't know that. Uh, but I also suspect that New Orleans doesn't want to commit that kind of money to either one of those two guys. And so, yeah, you, you run into an interesting situation where it comes down to, you know, your, your foundation is Anthony Davis and maybe Drew Holiday if he's healthy. Right. And so, so, then, so then the next question is, you look at what the Pelicans have moving forward. And let's say, like, I think it's probably fair to assume from both of our perspectives that both Gordon and Anderson, either via trade before the deadline this year or more likely um, since it looks like New Orleans might get back into the playoff picture at least enough to probably keep it together and see how it goes um, at this summer as free agents, let's say they both leave, um, which I think, I think you'd probably agree seems like, think you hinted at, seems like the most likely scenario. What, besides the obvious that every team in the NBA wants to try to sign Kevin Durant this summer and with Anthony Davis, they probably at least have a puncher's chance of getting him to call him back when they call him to talk to them. Um, it, let's just let's say Anderson and, and and Gordon leave. You know, then you're left with Davis and you've got Tyreek and Drew Holiday, assuming they're still on the team in the last year of the deals, and then you know, kind of a, a void there and and other pieces to build around. So what what is the what do you think the situation is for them moving forward, and what what do you think they want to try to do this summer, assuming they don't bring those guys back? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to explore whether it's this year or in the summer. You have to explore trades with Evans because you just only have so many pieces to get you uh, value back. And I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, the demand for Tyreek Evans, if it were 2007 would be great. Um, but the way teams are going, he's going to be in less demand. You're going to get less value for Tyreek. Uh, and also, you know, I mean, the, the, just, it's a simple fact that teams know, you know, he doesn't fit what the Pelicans do. So, if you're going to try to engage them in trade talks, you're not going to give up a whole lot to get him. You're going to feel like you can get him, you know, you got to match salaries, obviously, but you're going to feel like you can get him at a discount because he doesn't probably fit into their long-term plan. So what can you get for him? I don't know, but I think you have to explore that. I think they have to explore Anderson and Gordon trades because again, they're only going to have so much cap room, uh, even if they lose those guys. Uh, and so you, I think you got to look at, can those guys bring your assets back? And I think, as you mentioned, Anderson is a guy who people want, people do want him, um, and I think there will be contenders who want to make a move at the deadline who will be interested in him and some teams who maybe think they can sign him long-term. Does anybody in the league doubt that Detroit would want him badly, uh, that Stan Van Gundy would love to coach him again? Uh, you know, I think there will be a market for him and to a lesser extent one for Gordon. And then you go into free agency, and I think you got to start to look at, you know, just you have to look at, A, is, is this the right thing for you long-term? Is Alvin Gentry the right thing? Is the system the right thing? If you believe in that, if Del Demps believes in it, and if Del Demps, by the way, is still the guy making decisions, which we'll find out, um, you know, then you have to start to look to build a team that plays that way. And it's going to set back your, your building process because now you go out into free agency and you say, okay, 
can we go, what, what would it cost us to go get Evan Fournier, for example, who I think would fit very well? You know, wh- who are those guys you can identify and say they would fit? Um, you know, but, but I think doing that, in doing that, in looking to trade these guys and looking to sign some guys as free agents, you are admitting that this is going to be a bit of a process. And I don't think anybody envisioned sort of a building process like this when they signed Anthony Davis to a long-term deal. Right, and so let's. So I want to get to um, a couple facets of that. So, you know, we've kind of talked about how the roster doesn't quite fit what Alvin would like to do, and you talked about the possibility. You know, maybe Dell Dams will still be the GM, maybe not. So, um, if you could kind of run through an order from coach to GM to ownership and ownership there. Um, you know, recently Jeff Duncan, a longtime excellent columnist for the Times Picayune. Um, in New Orleans, wrote an open letter to Tom Benson, the owner of the Saints and the Pelicans, asking him to sell both teams um, to give people a really brief overview of what's happened. There, uh, Tom Benson's an old man, and his family underneath him has had a civil war, basically, to try to get yep. control of the future of the teams. And after a very bloody fight, his wife has been given basically you know, she's the next in line to run everything. And, you know, it's been a very protracted, ugly thing that a lot of people in the NBA haven't noticed because it's mostly been centered around the Saints and the Pelicans have kind of been off to the side. So if you don't really pay attention to the NFL or the Saints, you might not know about it. So, um, right. So I guess how concerned are you as an observer of the team that the ownership situation could kind of cloud the future for this group and then with that in mind, how do you see both Dell Demps and Alvin Gentry moving forward um, given kind of the roster issues and, and the situation the team finds itself in? Yeah, so it, uh, you summed it up pretty well there. I mean, 2016 will be a significant year for them. Uh, just from the standpoint, there is a lawsuit. Tom Benson is trying, the owner, is trying to cut his daughter and his grandchildren out of the ownership of the Pelicans and the Saints, and, and that is expected, I think, to go to trial in 2016. Um, you mentioned Jeff Duncan's column in the Times Picayune, my distinguished competition. Uh, he, he, uh, railed, Tom Benson railed against that column in a statement, basically saying he was not selling the team and also, uh, chiding the irony of the, uh, Times Picayune telling him to sell, uh, for the best interests of the city, given that he tried to buy the Times Picayune in the best interests of the city and, uh, kind of a snarky statement about, uh, the Times Picayune's unwillingness to sell to him. So it, that, that whole thing has been a little bit contentious. The ownership situation is just contentious. And then, you know, you add into that, you mentioned, you know, the NFL is kind of where all this is centered. And Jason Lockenfora had a, had a report recently just to sort of say, I think CBS, right? Just to say that, you know, there's some talk that maybe they're going to shake up uh, the way the ownership works or the, the, the way the, the, the operations work. And that Mickey Loomis, who's technically the vice president of basketball operations, but really, is more directly, much more directly involved with the Saints. If you read his bio in the media guide, the Pelicans media guide, it is all about what he's done with the Saints. And I think literally one sentence about basketball. Um, you know, he has sort of deferred all the operations to Dell Demps. Um, but there, there was a report that he will take on more of a role. Uh, if he does that, then maybe that means, you know, there's somebody else who's a new general manager. Uh, if he brings in a different general manager, what does that guy think about Alvin Gentry? What does that guy think about this system? Um, you know, and, and those are the decisions that are going to have to be made. What happens to Dell Demps? And if Dell Demps is replaced, does the next guy see this system as the best way to, 
to A, maximize Anthony Davis, and, and B, you know, give yourself a chance to contend for a championship while you have him under this contract. And 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 how much, you know, and, and if you can, let's try to sum things up with this. Obviously, you know, we mentioned the rough start the Pelicans got off to. Um, I wrote a couple weeks into the season that basically their season was over when they were, I think, 0-8 or 1. I might have even wrote it 1-12. I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was like these guys have no chance. Well, I still don't think they have much of a chance to make the playoffs given the amount of teams that are in the way. However, they are at um, they're 11 and 22, but because the West has been so underwhelming this year and much more underwhelming than the East, to be honest, um, going into Monday, we're recording this Sunday night, the Pelicans are 11 and 22, and they're four games behind the Rockets and three in the loss column for the eighth and final playoff spot in the West. So it's not like they're, you know, 10 games out at this point, and there's still more than half a season right. to be played, and they have one of the best players in the league on their team. So how do you think – what do you think is a successful season for these guys from now forward, What do you, and what do you think will happen, and how much of that do you think will impact the future of Dell Demps and even maybe Alvin Gentry? Because for people that don't remember – there was a lot of talk that last season that whether the Pelicans made the playoffs or not was going to determine it whether one or both of Monty Williams, the previous head coach, and Dell Demps would remain in their jobs. And it turned out that Dell Demps did and Monty Williams didn't um, when the, the, the Pelicans did make the playoffs on the last day of the season. So um, so what do you think of, you know, do you think they can make the playoffs still? And, and how much do you think these next few months will determine the fates of some of these people involved? Right, so like, uh, in order, what is a successful season for them? It's making the playoffs. I mean, that is a success, uh, especially at this stage. So if they could sneak into the eight and get trounced in the first round, that's a successful season on some level just because of the hole that you dug yourself. I don't think anybody went into the season thinking that the eighth seed and a first-round loss would be a success. So in, in the sort of grander scheme, it's it's a failure if that happens. But uh at the sort of micro level, if you're just looking at this season and the way things started, I think getting in would be a success. Uh, getting Davis at least another series in the playoffs, that's successful. Um, can they get there? You know, uh, you sort of went through the numbers there. Four games out, but they're not the only team. I mean, there's a lot of teams between them and the Rockets. And so uh, some of those teams are going to fade. You know, Phoenix technically is one of those teams ahead of them, not not for long. Yeah, I don't Phoenix think. isn't anymore, um, and they're actually tied with Denver. Uh, yeah, a, I mean, that's the thing. Like, they're, it's kind of remarkable to look at the yeah. standings now. Like, right now, they're 11-22. and 22. Denver, after losing to Portland tonight, is 12-23. and 23. Minnesota's 12-22. and 22. Sacramento's 13-20. and 20. Portland's 15-21. and 21. And Houston is 16-19. and 19. Now, I think Sacramento has the potential to be a decent team, assuming they can not they can stop being insane for an hour or two um they at least have a decent amount of talent on the roster but you know minnesota's really young denver's not ready portland has no you know portland can't play defense it's hard to see them really sticking even though terry stotts has done a great job i think with that team all season um so in part and houston has been a mess all season so yeah it, it is i i think you can it, it, I think you can draw a picture that sees them getting into the playoffs remarkably, and I think it does. Well, I think sure. you're right to think it, that, that that is kind of the standard that they should have to get to now. Yeah, I think the other thing you have to look at with them, they've had an imbalanced home road at this point. They've played five more road games than home games. That obviously balances out uh, you know, in this, in this last two-thirds of the season. 
Um, and, and there still is the one piece. Pondexter is still the piece out there that they haven't had who is, you know, I don't want to make Quincy Pondexter out to be some sort of savior. But if you watch them play, they're playing Alonzo G a lot of minutes. Uh, he's a really nice defensive player who is not much of a threat offensively. When you play him and you play Oshik, which is how they've been starting games with those two guys, you know, that leaves you with three guys on the floor who's either their one or one A priority is Anthony Davis. And you can argue everybody's priority is Anthony Davis, you know, but like legitimately three guys, this is what they're doing. Davis's guy, Oshik's guy, and G's guy are all focused on Davis. If you get Pondexter, who's a really, uh, you know, above adequate three point shooter, and then still gives you some of that defensive ability that G gives you, if he can come back and be healthy and contribute, it's a really nice piece for them to add at that stage. Uh, for a, for a team that has played one of the toughest schedules in the league, and also as I said, you know more road games than home games, five more. Uh, they're they're going to get a home schedule. They're going to get a lighter schedule, uh, and, and they're going to add a piece. Uh, and so even if they don't make any moves, and I think one of the things that's happening is a lot of teams around the league are in the same position they're in, kind of in wait and see mode. And then I think they're very much kind of thinking, well, let's see what happens when we get Pondexter back. Let's take a look at this whole team before we start to gut it. Um, and so yeah, I mean I think there are. There are scenarios you can draw where this happens, where it works out for them and they find a way to get to that eight seed. Um, if they don't, though, yeah, I, I think, you know, even if they do, I don't think it's a given that, that the, the, the double-headed uh, leadership there, the two-headed leadership of Dempson Gentry will be back. I don't think that's a given by any stretch of the imagination. As you pointed out, last year Monty Williams got in and didn't get to come back. Uh, I, I do think there's still a chance for change because a lot of people were talking about them as a five seed. Uh, I, I think there's still going to be some people disappointed and, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens in terms of that leadership, that, that ownership situation. And we'll see what happens in terms of Mickey Loomis. And if he decides that he wants to make a change at GM, uh, you know, all that stuff I think is going to be very dictated by the playoffs, but not entirely dictated by the playoffs. If they make it, I think they're much more likely to have bought themselves a year to see what they can do in free agency. Uh, if they don't, I think, you know, you're much more likely to see change. Well, and and I'll get you out of here on this, but do you do you think, in an ironic way, the fact that the West isn't very good almost works against them? And I, I would say probably more specifically for Dell Demps, given that you know Alvin Gentry just got there, he's probably going to stick around for a while. Um, because you know, let's say this was a usual West, right? And New Orleans starts off one and twelve. They have a billion injuries, and they're just in a hole they can't get out of, right? That you, I would think that. You could probably say, look, we were going to be good, but we got stuck in this hole because of all these injuries. We had no chance to get back in the race then. And so, you know, we had to go look and try to trade Ryan Anderson. We had to, you know, try to trade Eric Gordon and maybe we move Tyreek and we get some pieces for the future. And, you know, we do kind of spin it forward and try to get one really good draft pick, kind of do what the Spurs did when they had one bad year and get Tim Duncan. Maybe we can get a guy right up in, right up the road in Baton, Baton Rouge. Um, where the advocate's located, Ben Simmons, pair him with Anthony Davis or some other high-level young player, and you know that's our core moving forward. Um, but now it almost feels like the fact that the West is so bad, they've now that they're kind of back in the race, it's almost like the excuse that the injuries were giving them has kind of gone away. And now it feels like, given... The fact that you know Utah's had a ton of injuries, Houston's been a disaster. The other teams in front of them aren't exactly juggernauts. You look at this situation for the Pelicans, and it's almost now that you almost think that well, this team should make the playoffs because unless Davis has some serious long-term injury, 
you know, over 50 games, they probably should be four games better than these teams, and they should find a way to get in. Yeah, I, I do think there's there's something to that that you do lose sort of like because I'm the same as you at at one and eleven, whatever they got to, you know, even four and whatever they were, you know, I, I thought there was just no chance because you thought eventually, right, this is going to happen for Houston, like Houston's going to get it figured out. There's going to get some some people are going to put some distance between them and these teams that are scuffling down at the bottom, and it just hasn't happened. And so now you're you do you have reached this point where in January, early January, you're still in it. And you don't really get to use that as that built-in excuse anymore. But I still think the ultimate decision has to be, probably is going to have to be made based on, you do have these huge decisions coming up. You, you probably, you know, if you lose, let's assume you lose Gordon and Anderson, now you have to decide that this, this season was always sort of about figuring out, did you have the core that you felt like you could add a little bit to to make yourself a championship contender? And I think the answer is, is still probably, certainly no, you don't have that, and so you have to look at it and look at a long-term plan with Anthony Davis and figure out how you get yourself to be a playoff contender and, and you hope a championship contender. And I think you just got to figure out what the vision for that is long-term, and somebody is going to have to decide, is Dell Demps the guy to, who's, whose vision you trust uh, and is Alvin Gentry the coach for that vision? Uh, and if not, then you have to make some other decisions. And so, you know, I, I think the playoffs will help them if they get in. I think that's a successful season, but I don't think they can let that dictate everything because they do have to be looking at a much bigger picture here because they do have, you know, they have an elite player locked up for five years. who's 22 years old. You want to find, you, you got to do whatever you can to maximize, uh, you know, where you are in year four of that deal. Right. You don't want to be, you don't want to be the Timberwolves with Kevin Garnett, which is frankly at this exactly. point, what it kind of feels like this is turning into um, just a, a situation where, you know, Kevin. The big issue with Kevin in Minnesota always was they never had those young pieces to build around with him. You know, they had you know they had Wally Zerbiak for a while, and they had Stephon Marbury, and then they traded him. And you know, they 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 just never they never had those guys for him to grow with. And it was kind of the same thing right. here, where the, you know Dell Dems made a bunch of trades, traded some first round picks to get guys like Drew Holiday. Not that Drew Holiday's thirty, but. You know, rather than going through the draft, they kind of went out and got a bunch of vets that were ready to play now to try to be ready to win now. And now they're kind of in a situation where they don't really have those guys with Davis, like the Thunder or some of these other teams, or like the Warriors with Draymond Green and Harrison Barnes and uh, Clay Thompson with Stephen Curry. So you kind of have this group that kind of comes together of young guys. It's kind of like a mishmash of guys, and now. You know, if they don't, if they do kind of get back, you know, let's say they do end up finishing, even whether they make the playoffs or not, and they finish in the 10 to 14 range in the draft, you know, maybe you're going to get, maybe you get lucky and get Paul George there. It's more likely you get somebody like Cole Aldridge there, just by the nature of how the draft goes. So, you know, it, it does, it does kind of put them in a situation where, you know, they are making these giant sweeping decisions about the future of their franchise, and it is kind of, it is a pretty fascinating situation trying to figure out what the right decision to make is because they have kind of put themselves in a weird no man's land. It feels like, right? Yeah, you know the stuff you talked about there was all by design. They didn't want to go through the draft. They wanted, you know, Dell Dempsey's philosophy, and I, I, he does not talk to the media a lot. So I have talked to him, I guess, twice, and it was one of the things that he talked about was this was his philosophy. Guys in their sort of their mid twenties, guys who were at the stage of their careers where they were ready to kind of prove themselves as players, as, as a team, uh, to be on winning teams. That was what he wanted to put around Anthony Davis. He's not a big believer 
in the draft. And that's, you know, that's a perfectly viable philosophy. People build winners that way. Um, but what happens is you open yourself up to, you know, second guessing of some of these moves when you, when you set out to do that because other people have done it the other way. And so there are going to be people who look at it and say, just as an example, you know, in that trade, they trade, they drafted Nerland's Noel and he was one of the guys that got traded along with another draft pick. So you have Drew Holiday and he's been really good. And I said, I've said on record here today, I think, you know, he's a guy, if you're looking for a next piece beyond Anthony Davis, who they're going to keep and build, uh, you know, the team around, I think he's one of those pieces, but it's pretty easy to say, well, would you rather have, uh, you know, would you rather have Drew Holiday or would you rather have Nerland's Noel and say Alfred Payton, a local kid who would have, you know, filled that point guard need in that next draft who you could have had there. So, you know, th- I think that's the question uh, that, that you, you open yourself up to when you decide to build, you know, way A versus way B. And we'll get to read Brett Dawson, tell us what they do and why they do it. So, um, Brett, this has really been awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the time. Um, where, uh, where can people find you on Twitter and what stuff would you like to plug? Well, uh, people can find me on Twitter at, uh, it's B Dawson writes W R I T E S. Um, I tweet all the time. Uh, I'm easy to find. Uh, and I, I would just say for, you know, people to, uh, I don't have a specific story I want to plug right now. The team has been on the road a lot and I travel some and not all the time. So uh, I haven't spent as much time with them as I would like to uh, and, and haven't written the things I would love to, uh, to write lately. So people can just go to the New Orleans Advocate.com or the Baton Rouge or Baton Rouge Advocate.com. Either way, you can go to either advocate. You'll find our stuff there. Uh, and just, you know, look at our general Pelicans coverage. I do think on a day-to-day basis, we're doing a pretty good job. Doing a great job. And I would tell people, um, you should go back and read Brett's story from riding with Anthony back in the summer because it was an interesting look. You know, he, he kind of referenced to um what anthony said about his his uh you know his designs on the future but it is kind of an interesting look at anthony and a guy that because he's in new orleans doesn't necessarily get a ton of coverage um so i i would i would suggest everyone go check that out um you can find my work and the washington post um on our website please go check it out um you can also please subscribe to posting up on itunes um give us a five-star review that would be great um you know all reviews are appreciated so thanks for that in advance and uh the music on the podcast is provided by the sports digital editor at the washington post glenn yoder and his band the western states um thanks to glenn and those guys for that i'm still very excited that i know the person who did the music for the podcast i think it's very cool um brett thank you a lot for the time i appreciate you uh chatting about basketball late at night it's uh it's always a pleasure and i'm looking forward to talking again soon hey thanks so much tim uh i want to thank you for just as I made this transition, you made it a whole lot easier. So I appreciate that. Wow, you didn't need much help. So, but I'm I'm happy to do it. So thanks a lot, man, and thanks to everybody for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon.